Reteach, podcast for teachers seeking fresh viewpoints, deeper subject knowledge and diverse thinking. Hi everybody and welcome to the Reteach History podcast. I'm very honoured and privileged today to have two eminent historians joining me. They are both very, very busy and have recently written books, so you might like to incorporate their scholarship into your classroom. And if you're not a history teacher or you're a wannabe history teacher, a general listener, I'm sure you'll enjoy learning more from them this morning about the ever-captivating subject of witchcraft. We're going to look at witchcraft, really, from all angles, from bottom up and top down. And I'm delighted to have Malcolm Gaskill and Estelle Paranke with me. First of all, Malcolm. Welcome. Malcolm is a Matrius Professor of Early Modern History at the University of East Anglia, an authority on the history of witchcraft and witch trials. He's the author of six books, most recently The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World, and that's what we'll be focusing on today. A micro-history of a colonial witch hunt, which was a Sunday Times bestseller and shortlisted for the Wolfson Prize for History. He also has a new edition of Hellish Nell, which tells the extraordinary story of Helen Duncan, a spiritualist medium who was prosecuted in 1944 under the 1735 Witchcraft Act. Wow, Malcolm, she must have been the last person to be prosecuted for witchcraft, was she? Well, she was. I mean, the judge at the trial said that it was actually nothing to do with witchcraft and that it was really just a fraud trial. But of course, this was a point in the war where everyone was kind of bored and fed up and wanted some kind of sensationalist, uh, you know, bit of gossip. And of course, the press were all there. And because they were using the Witchcraft Act, inevitably, they reported it as a witch trial. So it sort of was and it wasn't. Uh, and in fact, the, the 1735 Witchcraft Act had been introduced to, to rip, you know, to, to, to end the prosecutions for witchcraft. It's just that that name, the Witchcraft Act, using that in 1944, I think made it kind of inevitable that people would would see it as a witch trial. Something for history teachers maybe to weave in in the 20th century, incredibly, that that act is still being used. We also have Estelle Perank with us this morning, hot from the BBC Radio 4 studios, where she's been talking about the new Ridley Scott Napoleon film. So we're very pleased to have you with us this morning, Estelle. Thank you. Estelle is an Associate Professor in History at Northeastern University, London, as well as an Honorary Research Fellow within the Centre for the Study of the Renaissance at the University of Warwick. She earned a PhD in Early Modern European History from University College London in 2016. She has participated in international historical TV documentaries, including BBC Two's The Berlins, A Scandalous Family in 2021, and Channel 4's The Queens Who Changed the World in 2023. She regularly appears on podcasts and gives talks to prestigious history and literary festivals. She's the author and editor of six books. And uh, coming out in 2024, you have Thorns, Lust and Glory, I believe, in, in this country in May, but in the USA next autumn too. Yes, exactly. Yes, thank you. The, it's a betrayal of Anne Boleyn, isn't it? Like the big witch as well. <laughs> well, of course, and every student in school will have heard of and every history teacher talks about and teaches about Anne Boleyn. So we'll come on to hear more about her later on. Okay, so we have an enduring fascinating with witches and witchcraft. We're now, we're recording this in November, the dark nights, the spooky time of year. And... um. 
coming to you, Malcolm, about your book, um, you, I mean, what I found about it was the the sort of thick description. Um, the late Hilary Mantel uh, praises you for the filmic vividness of your writing, and it really is incredible. What struck me was the ordinariness of things. You know, witches are were human, and they're not monsters. They're they're living amongst us, and it's kind of the breakdown of people's relationships that leads to these accusations. So can you maybe tell us more about the setting and the characters? Okay, so this is in the middle of the 17th century, and this is a remote um, English and Welsh colony founded in Massachusetts. So in the 1630s, there's mass migrations over to America, and these people have to try and make their own lives, make do, get along as best they can. And this is the settlement of Springfield. It's it's right out on the Connecticut River. It's a hundred miles even from Boston at this time, and uh, and this is a place where people really have to carve something that they remember from the old world out of the landscape, build houses, you know, feed themselves, and so on. And this presents very particular kinds of pressures and challenges to them, as well as the opportunities that they went there to exploit in the first place. So the relationship between husband and wife is pivotal to the story, isn't it? Can you explain a little bit about the characters? Okay, so the, the, the story that I'm telling this, this little, little micro-history, focuses on a couple called Hugh and Mary Parsons. And there's about 40-odd households in this community. And they really, you know, they kind of set the standard in how to get it wrong, if that's not a, a convoluted way of, of, of putting it. But uh, people do gradually turn on them and actually husband and wife turn on each other. So really, this is a story which you can kind of tell sort of from above as a sort of a macro story, but then you can you get right down into the nitty-gritty of this relationship under one roof and how that sort of almost works, I think, as a metaphor for the divisions within the community and actually the divisions that exist within the whole Anglo-American world um, at this particular moment of the 17th century. And I was reading where Hugh is kind of um, found to be a bit suspicious and he wanders around the village and he goes on these sort of sleeveless er errands, mm. as they're called. Maybe I took that to be kind of up to no good. What kind of things started happening? What accusations were there? It's a very slow-burning story. Sometimes with witchcraft accusations, you have this idea that something goes wrong, people can't explain it, and there's this sort of instant hysteria, a kind of knee-jerk reaction to it. But in this this story... That the the Hugh and Mary Parsons gradually fall foul of the neighbours over a period of months, actually even years, and uh, they're just not really kind of fitting in. Mary has um, a mental illness, but Hugh is just a very difficult, rather prickly character. And so, when this sort of what to us might seem like fairly trivial things, like missing tools or um, a, a pudding fails, you know, these seem almost like slightly comical things. But in the context of this world where there's a very, you know, it's a very precarious existence, there's a very thin line between kind of survival and, um, you know, and the total collapse of the community, that these things take on uh, huge significance and they become attached to the ill will of Hugh, uh, Hugh Parsons in particular, as if he's the sort of enemy within. He's constantly kind of um, he's sort of at war with his neighbours when he should actually really be living in charity, which was the ideal that these migrants supposedly took with them to America. So, Malcolm, that's interesting in that you spoke about males and females. We 
traditionally tend to think of witches as being females. And your action is happening in New England. Teachers, history teachers will most, most probably be teaching about the English or British civil wars. So what were the similarities and differences between witch accusations and witch trials here as opposed to in America? They're actually extremely similar. I mean, these are very recent migrants. They've, you know, they're essentially English. They call themselves the English and they've taken with them all their kind of their worldview and their, you know, their sort of the assumptions about society and the universe. So that actually when it comes to making accusations, which are always embedded in the social and economic conditions of communities, as well as being this kind of idea that we think the demonologists sort of impose from above, um, you know, it's it's extremely similar. And so that we, what we're really talking about is a kind of suspicion between neighbours and also competition for rather scarce resources. And that when you actually boil these accusations down in North America, they really have exactly the same uh, components that you find in English accusations as well. Yeah, and I found that, I think I'm right in saying that there were witch trials to greater or lesser extent in every county in the British Isles. There were kind of hot spots, East Anglia, Lancashire, the Pendle witches, Fife for particularly in Scotland as well. Um, and so with all of that going on here, what was it that sort of encouraged you or inspired you to take up the Springfield story particularly? Well, one of the things about Springfield is it's incredibly well documented. And that in order to, to really get this sort of fine-grained story that makes, you know, the idea, often rather misunderstood idea of witchcraft makes sense, you really kind of need to know all those details about people's lives and the way they lived. Otherwise, the idea just sort of, you know, almost like it floats in the air. And actually what you need to do is to kind of embed it into the detail of people's lives. And then, you know, they don't even really understand what witchcraft is. And people aren't completely crazy about witchcraft. They're not constantly accusing people of witchcraft all the time as soon as something goes wrong. So it takes some rather particular kinds of circumstances to all come together for this rather abstract idea of witchcraft to suddenly make sense to something real where an individual could actually be accused of witchcraft rather than just witches always being there sort of in the margins as, as kind of shadowy, nightmarish figures that never quite come into view, um, but that just generate a sort of fear. But this is really what we see in the Springfield story is fear made flesh. So being able to tell that story from the sources was really what, what drew me to it in the first place. Wow, and you do that incredibly well. I mean... In Springfield, I mean, you've obviously been. Are there any memorials? There's calls for memorials. There are trails in Fife in Scotland. I know people trying to kind of mark or commemorate people who were accused. Is there anything like that there? Well, not to my knowledge. Um, I mean, maybe there will be one day. There certainly is quite a lot of global interest in setting up witchcraft memorials, as you say, in different places, including in North America. And there is a memorial uh, in Salem, for example. So maybe it will, will come. But I think that, you know, when, when I was there a few years ago, there didn't seem to be very much uh, awareness of what had happened. And I think it just hasn't kind of seized the imagination of Springfield in the way that the Salem trials have, uh, you know, captured the imagination in, in that part of North America. Well, I'm sure, you know, the issuing of your paperback book may well lead to something different there. We hope, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. 
Now then, what I was also interested in recently and the thoughts on this, for teachers and students who want to know more, I believe there's a new MA in magic and occult studies at the University of Exeter. They're talking about global perspectives of witchcraft and other issues. What do you think of that relevance and kind of any modern day parallels? Well, I think it's it's a it's it's a very interesting course. I mean, the, the, you may know the press rather leapt all over this as if this was uh, some kind of you know British universities going a bit in you know, a Hogwarts type direction, as if <laughs> it was just learning about magic. Of course, it's the understanding of of magic in our lives and in history and sociology and anthropology, because actually we did evolve to be rather magical creatures. Um, to have a religious impulse, to have faith in things, to believe in things we can't see. Because actually, we really live that um, supernatural beliefs underpin our, you know, the, the way that we understand ourselves, whether we realize it um, or not. So I think this is a really um, an interesting moment to have this course, which is a very serious thing about really, you know, not dismissing magic in a rather fantastical Harry Potterish sort of way, but actually really understanding where it comes from within ourselves, and also not being too dismissive about other cultures, whether they're in the past or whether there are other cultures around the world today, where magic and, and witchcraft are still very much part of daily lives. So I think it's it's about ultimately this is a there's a course which is about a more rounded understanding of humanity. And, um, you know, and, and, a, and a rather sort of humbling step away from the kind of exceptionalism with which we rather treat ourselves. Absolutely. And I mean, I suppose, I mean, what is an, an ordered society? You know, what does that mean in one context or another? As you say, belief in witches may, is still the case in certain parts of the world today. It certainly is widespread. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's, it's worth certainly kind of having an eye to that and having a mind and greater global understanding. I think so. And also because witchcraft is, you know, it's it's the study of witchcraft is never an end in itself. And it certainly wasn't for me writing The Rune of All Witches. It's a way of understanding a mentality at a time. And understand, when I say mentality, I don't just mean a set of ideas, but a, a whole culture, a whole way of living, a whole, you know, interconnected structure of existence that was in some ways is similar to our own. I mean, I think there are emotional dimensions to the story that we could all identify with. But of course, the circumstances in which those emotions are deployed are, of course, vastly different, given that you are in this settler community, you know, out in a, you know, out in the sticks in, um, you know, Western Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. But as you say, real similarities with people who were living in settled communities, whether that's Scotland or England. In any case, it's about human relationships, suspicion, jealousy, paranoia, I guess, all of those things. And all of those things affect us all today still, you know? And it's about power, uh, I yeah. think, as well. I think witchcraft is always um, at some level about power, about you know, maybe claiming power to yourself if you don't have any by natural means or imputing that supernatural power to others. So that it is, and it's, the, the witchcraft accusation stories are always about power differentials. They're always about the weak and the poor and often um, about richer, more powerful people imagining that the weak and power, the, the powerless um, have got some kind of supernatural way of getting the better of them. So, um, you know, this, these, you know, these differentials of power and of wealth and poverty are, of course, universals. And I think that witchcraft is a very good way of understanding, you know, the, the way that the, the, those relationships existed 
you know, three, four hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and Estelle, you've very kindly written lists for the Reteach website where you've spoken or you've headed it up a social and cultural case and you've listed some recommended reading of course Malcolm's works and a short introduction to witchcraft which is brilliant and the rune of all witches hellish knell they're all there recommended examining themes particularly around maybe gender and class can you tell us a bit more about women as accused and accusers yeah, well, I think, you know, it was just fascinating to listen to, to Malcolm because obviously I teach at our university witchcraft. And for me, it's obviously more linked to everything you said, you know, the, the powerful and the poor. And, but it's so good to listen to you as well. When, uh, and that's what I love about your work is that we get a sense of also the fears and how the, the people play, you know, the fear of, um, each other, right? Like the otherness. And I think that's what you can link to a lot of different topics, early modern topics. So I found it very interesting. But for me, yeah, women, obviously, you know, it, it's a myth that women were the only one who were accused. But at the same time, when you really look at s- statistics, there were often, you know, the easiest target, I would say that way. But you know what struck me with the rearing of all witches is also how close, and maybe Malcolm is going to disagree with me, and I would love that to be fair, like, you know, because maybe I'm not the expert here on that. But you know, it is so close to the Salem witch trial. I think, you know, because again, in the Salem witch trial, you have this, this couple who are going to turn against one another and they're going to try to save, well, especially the husband trying to save it save himself and he's not going to save himself and i thought about this with the same story that you have in your book where you know at the end like it's also about relationship it's also like it tells us so much about you know it tells so much about the period and like how we saw each other and how we feared each other and how we feared ourselves because we couldn't explain things but for me obviously it's also very much interesting when you talk about the powerful and the, you know, the powerless in many ways. You know, we know James VI of Scotland had s- something against witchcraft. Like, I mean, he wrote about the devil and fear of it. And when you read what he wrote, Maleficious, I think, or something like that, like, it's incredible that a king so powerful who's going to be, you know, crown king of England as well is so obsessed with witchcraft. You know, when uh, his wife, Anne of Denmark, is coming and he thinks that. Because she had a bad trip, like it's all done to it, and he's gonna, you know, persecute women, and he's gonna. But I love the way Malcolm explained about the power, because it's a question of power, and I've never seen it that way, if I'm honest. <laughs> and I've read your work, Malcolm. Sorry, but I like the way you think. You know, some someone was saying, "I have power." You know, that's me. That's the supernatural. Like, you know, I can, I can hurt you. I can, I can curse you. Right. And so, like, the fear of the supernatural, the fear of something that goes beyond religion, right? That goes, you know, but it's also so linked to religion. And when we think about, you know, the society at the time, it is quite, um, it is quite something. And obviously, in my own work, I work on, on these women, well, especially Anne Boleyn, but we, we can talk also about Elizabeth Woodville, um, her mother, Jacketa of Luxembourg. When you have a powerful woman who should not be so powerful, should not be so high, she must be a witch. There must be witch witchcraft involved. She can't she can't have seduced a man just 
by being beautiful, intelligent or witty or funny, you know, all the qualities you want. No, she, she must have done something. So I think that's where witchcraft is such an important topic. I agree with Malcolm as well about the MA um, that has been set up. And I love that, as he said, you know, there are some cultures today where witchcraft and magic are very important still. And we have to learn to respect that as well, because there's, you know, it's part of their culture and a big part of it, you know, and there is some stuff that we can't explain sometimes. And I think that it's important to, yeah, respect each other's beliefs, uh, respect, you know, I'm talking about some African tribes who... Uh, you know, they have their own things or, you know, like even before the Aztecs and so they had their own rituals. And I think that the Europeans always like look down on them by saying, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's barbarous, that's this. <laughs> we were the same, right? Like <laughs> it's not, we put people like, you know, I, I heard people say, oh, but the Aztecs, they were like, you know, eating other people. Yeah, we put people like to burn. I mean, it's not like we we have the moral ground here. So I think it's there's so much to learn from our past, and there's so much to learn from witchcraft as a very important component of how our society and cultures have evolved throughout centuries. It seems to be, and I mean, this might be a myth, but I think the statistics bears it out. Older, maybe unattached females that were accused of witchcraft, so maybe they were the easy targets. You know, uh, would you agree that that's the case? I would say so, right? Like, Well, I think sometimes we see it the wrong way around. We sometimes think that, you know, people couldn't explain things and therefore they looked for a target. I mean, it's not a word I would use. Um, we, they look for someone to blame. I think this, you know, the, the witches aren't that kind of scapegoat. That the accusations of witchcraft, most of what we see, they arise from very particular sets of personal relationships within communities where it becomes plausible that the person that you've fallen out with might be a witch. But these are not accusations which are hurled about randomly. So we are, you know, across the early modern period, let's say from the late Middle Ages through to the 19th century, which is the full span of witch hunts, we have something like 110,000 trials that we know of. Well, that's See, that's a lot for a crime that I'm sure that we would all agree is you know doesn't doesn't exist. It's not a real crime, but actually that's a very very small number, a very small proportion of the situations of conflict between people that took place across the whole of the Western world in that time. So that a witch trial is quite a peculiar, specific thing. Witchcraft isn't something that you can just simply blame anybody that you don't like of. So I think sometimes we do a disservice to our ancestors if we suggest that these accusations are kind of random scapegoating. They're just typically not that way. And of course, we need to actually understand the backstory um, of these relationships to see how the witchcraft evolves as something which does become plausible in that situation and can then be acted upon. Even then, half those trials end in acquittal. That surprises people constantly, but that's because people aren't just, you know, rounding up witches and condemning them. They go to legal trial. These are early modern states that are absolutely obsessed with due process, law and order. Uh, and and in many cases, the you know the rigorousness of evidence and proof in England, for example, 
uh, 75% of even those cases that go to trial end in acquittal. So it's, you know, our ancestors are more discerning about who may or may not be a witch. There may be absolute fury in a community, but when it comes to court, there are often much more sober assessments. So this is why I think we need to understand witchcraft as a, not as a hysterical thing, both in terms of hysteria at the time and a kind of hysterical approach to it, I think, you know, after the witch trials ended and as a polemical idea, which witchcraft lends itself to, especially between Catholics and Protestants, but as something that was very potentially real in people's lives, but actually a very uncertain thing and something which they weren't really sure about a lot of the time. And I think then we start to see it as a much more nuanced and subtle part of the way in which people thought and acted. Your book beautifully develops the backstory, which I think is so important. You, you use the phrase slow burn, and I would agree. When I was reading it, I felt I really knew the couple and the community involved. And the religious element of it was less so than I imagined. It was more to do with the states and the authorities. And I think maybe in young people, and Estelle, I'm going to come to you now, the idea of... Um, Catholics versus Protestants, this idea of, you know, Anne Boleyn and she's got a sixth witchy finger, you know, this is like black propaganda aimed probably at her daughter, I would imagine. What would you say about that? Is it a load of nonsense? Would you dismiss it or would you use it as a way in, in you know, in a classroom? How would you sort of characterise that? That's a very good question. I, I just would like to say something about what Malcolm said, because I think it's so interesting that he touched upon uh, just, you know, when he said, like, you know, there's a difference in, in the in the community, you know, and in the trials. Right. And I love that you said that because I think there's a lot of confusion sometimes, even when we teach witchcraft. So, you know, there can be a lot of animosity against a witch and, you know, um, or against a witch, you know, against a woman that you're going to accuse of being a witch. And then what you said in the trial itself where it, there's going to be laws and it's going to be regulations and it's going to have to be followed. And I think that once you make that difference as well, when you uh, it's where you learn so much as well from what's happening. And you've done that in your work. You know, you, you make the difference. And with the Salem witch trials that's so, you know, popular, there's also that difference, you know, that, that the hysteria comes, you know, but but in many ways. And, and when it goes out of control, you know, when it goes into court, like that's where it creates lots of problems, right? You know, because the two spheres are not separated. So I just wanted to say that it's a brilliant way of teaching witchcraft as well if you're a teacher like to have this kind of um, thought in your head to explain to your students. But when it comes to Anne Boleyn, now Carmel, <laughs> no, yeah, obviously I, I, I don't think I would use it to teach. I mean, you could do, you could start your class uh, with like all her detractors and to debunk all the myth and to say, and, and actually bring some primary sources and say, you know, she was accused of that. She she was said of that. The 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 witchcraft, like there was no real accusation of witchcraft or of Anne Boleyn. It's more again in the society. It was never you know in her trial. Trial. It's about incest. It's about adultery. It's absolutely not true. It was her enemies saying, "Oh, she must have." You know, you just had to resort to the fact like it's not possible for Henry VIII to have fallen for someone like that. You know, with the end of her. But that's in the society. That's in the that's the rumors. That's the scandals. That's not. 
you know, the law. That's not, you know, again, she was not accused of witchcraft. She didn't have a trial for this. Again, it's a big, strong parallel with uh, Jacket of Luxembourg and Elizabeth Woodville, who were accused as well of having seduced, you know, Elizabeth's husband and that's how she became queen. You know, you just need to have... But again, it was not... Well, Jagata was accused of, of witchcraft, right? Like, she, there was... But but her daughter was not. It's just like the dark legend of her, you know, of her mother on her that stained her. So here I think that if I was a teacher and I was teaching about it, no, there's no six um, fingers. Uh, but I would probably start with this to understand also the misogyny against women, uh, against women who are not supposed to be so close to power. Uh, how much we have a problem with women who are like, you know, especially if you take these three cases, Jack, Jacketa, Elizabeth, Woodville and Anne Boleyn, and you try to see how much men, depending on where they are, because Richard III never believed the witchcraft accusations of Jacketa or or Elizabeth Woodville. I think it's important to know as well, like, you know, not everyone was resorting to witchcraft accusations. To make, you know, what Malcolm said, you know, it was not just an easy claim to make. And so I think if you look at that and you look at the misogyny and how these women of power uh, were treated, then yes, it's a very interesting discussion. You can uh, make the, the students reflect on how the myth also of witchcraft played a, a, a role at court and not just, you know, uh, beyond court with, with, a, with the poor. And even, you know, in government, I remember, you know, Margaret Thatcher, she was often likened to a witch. And when she died, you know, very disrespectful comments, political cartoons, that kind of characterization of a powerful female, for whatever reason, if, if they are doing something that people disagree with, they're suddenly turned into a witch. We probably, if we looked in, in, in political cartoons in the last three or four months, we'd probably find the same, you know? So this is something that is prevalent now, isn't it? And that's a way maybe student, um, teachers could look at things in lessons as well, looking at recent. Yeah, it's sources. a way of mocking, you know, women of yes. power as well. Um, but when you think about but at the same time, I would just be a bit careful with that because, I mean, though you're totally right, Carmel, I'm just saying that, you know, there's always caricature as well of male politicians as well. It's not like you know, they might not be witches, but they might be clowns or they might be you know, boofans or, or something else. So I think we just here is just um, a thing that is to hurt, obviously, the not the charisma. Like I want to, um, sorry, I can't find my word, but like the, the work of someone, even if you disagree. I mean, I'm not talking about, poli you know, if you disagree with them or not, but like you attack the character. Yeah. So in a way, it's easier for with women to be a witch, right? Um, because but but men have also there. Um, I, I just want to make that clear that men that were in power also can be very criticized. Like you have Henry the Third, he was like of France, obviously in 16th century, he 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 was depicted like um, as a half fish, half man, or he, he had like really weird kind of caricatures when he was, you know, when people believed he was a tyrant. It's pure prop propaganda. You know, I'm, I'm just saying that because, like, he would not have been depicted as a witch. Her son was still suffering much of a very bad reputation as well. And I think that for that, we, you know, it's, it's not really a competition. <laughs> something, just something monstrous, basically, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think the connection between the two is the image of the monstrous and the, you know, the witch you know, we tend to think, we tend to go looking for the witch in history, but actually witchcraft is a set of 
associations and assumptions. It's a lens of seeing other things. So I think the connection between, say, the village witch and Elizabeth Woodville or Anne Boleyn is that they are rebels. They are this projection of female rebellion against the standing order of things. And I think this is where the, the, the misogyny or, or perhaps the, to give it a kind of social context, the patriarchy comes in because patriarchy is a political order and the witch, whether it's at the lowest level or whether it's at court, represents the rebellion against that established order. And so everybody, you know, in the, in the 16th, 17th century, people would have been quite hard pushed a lot of time to tell you exactly what a witch was, but they absolutely inherently understood all those negative associations of power and of rebellion and of speech and all those things. And so that gender, of course, is another way of understanding politics and witchcraft rather, you know, rather presses on that particularly sensitive nerve when gender and politics collide to to you know as i say it can be directed against a specific woman who is the enemy of those who court like Anne Boleyn or like elizabeth um uh, woodville um but it's um you know it's 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 mainly it's uh, it's a way of often slyly suggesting that this person has fallen foul of expectations by other means and that's even true of the as i say in a slightly different context that actually still applies to the village witch who again has and this is particularly true within households the witch has is disobeying expectations about patriarchy because the meanest humblest cottage in the smallest most remote village is still governed by patriarchy and that that's witchcraft always represents a rebellion against them of course going against the established order well i'm sure we have encouraged in the right way, our young people who may well be listening or their, their teachers will be introducing them to this, to rebel or aim high, for want of a better phrase, you know, to go against to being told what to do in some circumstances because that's how change comes about, isn't it? And that's how we learn and progress and develop things. Honestly, Malcolm, your book is fantastic. Thank you so much for writing it and for everything that you've brought to the discussion today. Estelle, you know, from Radio 4 to us and your new book in May here and in autumn next year in America. I, I can't thank you both enough. I've thoroughly enjoyed our very rounded and wide-ranging discussion. So thank you both very, very much for being part of the Reteach History podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.